Hey all, thank you for tuning into Women Birders Happy Hour. My name is Hannah. I'm a birder, a woman, and someone that enjoys a good drink after a long day of birding. Women have been integral to birding since it started, but we haven't always been recognized for the contributions and impact we have. Men have dominated the guiding scene, festival circuit, leadership positions, and publications. And according to a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 2011 report, in the U.S., there were over 47 million birders. The majority of these birders are college-educated, they are white, they are women, and mostly are over the age of 55. And if you put all these factors together, we create the typical birder, a white, college-educated woman over the age of 55. And that's a demographic that I often see out birding, but I don't as frequently see as a speaker, a guide, or a sole publisher. Additionally, the voices of all women, BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus birders are not well represented in the birding voices we hear from. So I created this show to bring in more voices. Not to say that some of the regular festival keynotes aren't great, but there is room for others. And on the show, I'm asking everyday women from all walks of life to join me to discuss their experiences, their resources, and advice that they have for others. And I want you to remember that just because you may not have experienced some of these things, like sexism or gatekeeping, doesn't mean that they aren't real issues that others face. And because some of these conversations are best had over a cocktail or a mocktail, I also create a unique cocktail for each guest in case you want to mix yourself a drink and join us for this chat. Oregonians are a simple bunch. We like to go outdoors and we like good beers. And Sarah likes these things, but she also likes to write, engage with others, and expand the world of birders. So marbled murrelets are a small seabird from the North Pacific. They're a small, chunky bird with a slender black bill. They have pointed wings and their plumage is mottled brown. They nest in old growth forests or on the ground when they're nesting in higher latitudes where trees don't grow. And the first nest was actually found in 1974, which makes it one of the last North American birds to have its nest described. And they can be found uh, up from Alaska all the way down to South Central California in the summers. And in the winters, they're not found that far north. And they typically occur in salt water within a mile or so from shore. Marbled murrelets nest in the oldest trees in the stand, which trees tend to show old growth characteristics between 175 and 250 years old. They prefer large trees with an open crown structure, moss-covered limbs that are camouflage shaded and mostly horizontal and about 14 inches in diameter. They prefer old growth forests that are larger than 500 acres, but it seems that 60 acres is really the minimum. And they lay one egg on a platform of lichen or moss on that branch. And it takes about a month or so for incubation. And then the chick is fed for about 40 days before it fledges. Adults will fly from ocean feeding areas to inland nesting sites, uh, usually around dawn or dusk. They feed the nestling one to two times a day and um, only about one fish at a time. They forage near shore and in inland saltwater areas, but may also forage in freshwater lakes that are inland. And they feed on small fishes and invertebrates and usually in pairs. Their population is in decline and that's due to logging uh, and its dependence on old growth forests, which have made the species um, a representative for forest preservation. Jays and ravens are also some of the main predators of eggs and chicks. So here's how to make your marbled murrelet. Uh, what you'll need is an, uh, 16 ounces of a stout beer, 
one shot of hazelnut liqueur like Frangelico. So what you do is take that uh, stout and fill a chilled glass with it and then top it off with that hazelnut liqueur. So there is a great place to find marbled murelets on the Oregon coast um, that's called Yahats, which is on the central coast. It's tiny little community, gorgeous views, really cool beaches. Uh, and that's actually where I got my lifer, um, marbled murelet, where my husband and I participated on in a survey with OSU, Oregon State University researchers, um, in which we actually camped out and then woke up first thing in the morning in the National Forest, and we had marbled murelets flying and calling over us. It was very cool. And then we went out to the ocean where you could actually see them um, floating on the water. Anyways, that town, Yahats, has a brewery which is called a marbled murelet. So although I don't expect you to go find that beer to make this drink, I added in a shot of hazelnut, which will give you that Oregon kick. And Sarah uh, didn't mention this species during our interview, but what I did was uh, her Oregon Coast book that she has, I flipped through the pages and just randomly selected uh, a bird and this happened to be it. So I hope you get a chance to enjoy a marbled murelet while you're thinking about seeing marbled murelets on the Oregon coast. So uh, join me for this chat with Sarah. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me for Women Birders Happy Hour. Would you please tell everyone who you are? Hi, Hannah. It's so nice to be here. Uh, my name is Sarah Swanson. I'm a birder based in Portland. I work at Portland Audubon for my day job where I'm the event specialist. I manage fundraising events like Birdathon and the Wild Arts Festival. And then I'm also a bird book author. And my second bird book, which is um, a field guide to the Oregon coast and its birds, um, came out in October. And I have a third one coming out um, which is going to be the Cascades and uh, Gorge birds. And that is coming out next fall. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to have to get that one. Those are like a lot of the birds that I'm missing are like Cascade things. Yeah, that was a fun one to write because it's got all the cool like woodpeckers and finches and corvids and stuff. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on your Oregon Coast one coming out. I don't think I've talked to you since then, but we, we do have a copy here in the office at the hotel. So got my name in it. So I'm hoping nobody steals it. But um, yeah, it's very cool to tell everybody I know the author of this. Oh, nice. Well, I appreciate you spreading the word. I'm hoping that this book will end up in like every um, motel and Airbnb along the coast so everybody can see it. Okay, maybe I'll have to put in a word with the chamber and see if we can we can arrange for that. So tell me about your birding origin story. Oh, let's see. So I started birding when I was actually just a kid. So I took an extracurricular class when I was in fourth grade that was about birds and involved um, going out in the field a little bit and bird watching. And I'd always been an animal lover. I wanted to be a veterinarian when I grew up at that point. Um, but I just didn't really know anybody that was a birder and had never really thought that much about birds specifically. But going out into the field and learning about these birds that were around me and most of all, getting a field guide for the first time really just like pushed buttons in my brain. And I was like obsessed with how many different birds there were. I had 
um, like the golden guide. And I had uh, the Western version of the Audubon guide that has that red kind of plasticky cover and it has all the colored plates in the front. And so you can just like flip through all the colored plates and each one is numbered. And so I would like make my friends and family, like pick a number between one and 658 or whatever. And then be like, Oh, you got the painted bunting, you know? And so um, I was just like so interested in birds in general, even the ones that we didn't have in Oregon. But then I got more and more into going out and looking at birds and uh, bless my parents. They are not birders, but they would like take me out to local spots in Portland, like Savi Island and um, the Audubon Society. And then um, when we'd go to the coast, I'd be looking for birds there. I was not good at it because, you know, all I had was my field guide and I didn't have any birding mentors or anything. So I think there was a lot of mis-IDs uh, early on, but that's really when it kind of caught fire for me. That's awesome. So did you just keep on continuing from that point or did you have any breaks like lapses yeah in your I mean I always was into birds but like I didn't know any other birders I didn't have my driver's license till I was like 21 <laughs> so like in high school you know you just get really busy with sports and academics and everything and so I just had no time for that and then in college I was you know studying biology at University of Oregon but I never took ornithology, I think because it started at like five in the morning. <laughs> so I never wanted to do it. Um, and then I, after undergrad, I decided that I really did want to study uh, birds academically. And so I went to, to grad school in Oklahoma and started studying birds there and took ornithology class and um, met uh, my husband. And uh, so having somebody to go birding with, like, got me much more into it. And just going out all the time made me a much better birder. And so from there, it's just been, you know, pretty serious as far as birding for me. So when you go out birding now, what does a day of birding look like for you? I mean... An average day of birding now is more like just trying to, you know, squeeze in a short little outing between all the other obligations of life. But a perfect day of birding probably is like the whole day and it involves uh, a stop at some sort of bakery um, so that there's like, you know, pastries for uh, fueling the day and somewhere that I can like walk around and explore a bunch of different habitats and I love birding with um, my friends and my husband. So, you know, that would be great. And then perfect birding day ends at a brewery where we can talk about, you know, all the fun that we had that day. See, this is why you're friends, because that's exactly. like the ideal birding day. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so who or what do you think has been the most influential thing or person in your birding? Mm, well, I loved this question. Um, I I had to think about it. And um, I, I mentioned meeting my husband and how that was really um, a big deal because I'd never had like a birding buddy before. And he and I started out as birding buddies uh, before um, we even started dating. And so 
we met one evening and the next day we went birding together the entire day. So <laughs> um, that having um, somebody who wanted to go birding all the time was great. And, you know, to go with the theme of this podcast as a woman birder, um, there had been some places that I had wanted to go birding in Oklahoma and just did not feel comfortable doing so or had gone and then bailed because I just got creeped out. And so having somebody um, to go with me and not have to bird by myself also uh, made me want to spend a lot more time birding. But before that, um, in I think 2002, I got the Sibley Guide that had just like the big one that had just come out, I think like a couple of years before. And wow, that book is just amazing. I mean, if you think about what came before it, at least what I had had before it, um, it made me look at field marks so much more and um, really think about ID in a much more careful and precise way than I had before and think about different plumages um, that that birds had. And um, it was a big a kind of push um, to think more about those kinds of things in my birding. And it definitely made me a better birder. That's awesome. So you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what has been your experience as a woman birder? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to say that I don't have any horror stories as a woman birder. And part of that might be um, because I'm a, a cis white woman birder and don't have some of the kind of intersectional struggles that other uh, women birders might have. But I have definitely experienced sexism out in the field and just in the the world of birding, unfortunately. You know, when I go out birding with my husband, there would be people who would, men that would just come up and talk to him as if I wasn't there, as if he was the birder in the group and I wasn't. And, you know, we're we're both pretty equal as far as our, our abilities and seriousness about birding. And um, so that always kind of sucked. And I've just <laughs> seen and heard from a lot of people that still have kind of outdated ideas about how women bird, you know, have ideas about what their roles are and their preferences are as far as, oh, women aren't competitive or women are more like nurturing and helping new birders. They're not like, you know, out there trying to break records and stuff. And that doesn't really, you know, mesh with what I see and what I know from myself and my friends who are um, women birders and also with male birders. It's it's weird to uh, make those kind of gender assumptions about birders. And so, you know, I there's also lots of people that are not sexist in birding. So I don't want to, you know, make sweeping generalizations. But I mean, as a hobby that especially when I started, you know, was mostly um, male and continues to be, you know, a hobby that a lot of older people have as a young woman, uh, sometimes assumptions get made about you. And that doesn't feel great. Yeah, well, I, I hope things are changing, at least. And Oh, I really think they are. And that's something that I'm really excited about. I mean, I think that even people who had those assumptions are working to do better. And there's a lot of younger folks coming in to birding that are not having those kind of outdated ideas about, you know, what a birder looks like and who's a birder and 
and that kind of thing. And so I'm I'm really excited to see, you know, I still might fall into the younger birder category in quotes, um, but there are lots of folks even younger than me that are just doing really cool things in birding that I'm happy to see. Totally. So we've all been beginners at some point in our birding careers. Um, how do you feel that we could be more supportive of beginners? Yeah, so that's something that I... I definitely care about a lot. Um, I I want birding to be supportive and welcoming um, to beginners. So I think I might have said this before in my previous answer, but I think we should question our assumptions about um, what a birder looks like and how they act. Um, there's just kind of some old stereotypes about what you have to be like to to be a birder, but there's different ways of birding that might not be, you know, how we do it, but we can still be supportive of birders that, you know, put less emphasis on knowing the identity of every bird, which sounds like blasphemy to some people, but it's, it's okay. Those people can be birders too, you know, some people might have mobility issues. So they might just do more like stationary birding. They might not, you know, cover five miles when they go out birding. There might be people that don't care about chasing rarities and they just like common birds and enjoy those birds. And so those are all valid ways of birding. Um, one thing I've seen come up, we could stop asking people if they have quote, seen any good birds because it's this weird question that I have definitely asked people in the past, but I'm trying to stop because it's like, well, what's a good bird? Like, am I going to be judged on my answer? <laughs> so um, just, you know, think about how to not put people on the spot if you meet new birders out in the field. And, you know, as bird walk leaders, which you and I have both done a lot of that, you know, we can slow down and enjoy the common birds, which are going to be new birds and exciting birds for people who are beginners. And if we just act like those birds are boring because we've seen them hundreds of times, then uh, we're not being very supportive. So, you know, slow down, enjoy all the birds and welcome everybody that likes birds, whether they match your ideas of what a birder is or not. I, I like your point about slowing down with the common species. I just finished um, Slow Birding by Joan Strassman that came out recently. And her whole thing is like, you know, taking some of the common birds that we don't see all the time because the ones she she has in it is are mostly Midwest species, like cardinals mm -hmm. and stuff. And she had these um, chapters that just had all of this really interesting information about those species that it's like, Oh, I've seen, you know, a thousand Cardinals, but I didn't know all this stuff about them. So yeah, I think that is a great point to slow down and appreciate those things. The chickadees, you know, <laughs> always there. Yeah. That book sounds great. I've been meaning to check it out. Uh, so do you feel that you found your place in the birding community? Um, I have been really lucky and I would say that I have. I mean, part of it has been um, an effort that I've made to do so. So, you know, I didn't always feel like I was part of the birding community. And um, my friend Jen and I at one point decided to start a birds and beers meetup in Portland um, for folks, you know, around our age-ish, which was in the 30s at that point. And you've been to at least one or two of those. Yeah. Um, and so we just kind of started 
inviting people that we met that were birders that were, you know, let's call them non-retired birders. Maybe. <laughs> and um, just everybody kept inviting people that they knew or people that they met out on the field. And I just met all these really cool birders. And a lot of them have just become pretty close friends um, through that. And so I feel like I have a birding community in that way. And then uh, through my volunteer work with the Oregon Birding Association serving on their board, um, I also was able to meet uh, so many people across Oregon in the birding community and uh, feel like, like part of that community because we were all working together to make the Oregon birding community even better. So um, I feel like I do have my place and now I feel like it's uh, my job to to help other people find that that are still looking for their birding community in Oregon. That's awesome. I'm glad that you're being supportive of, of the other birders out there that want help. Mm -hmm. So what has been your most memorable bird or birding experience? Well, I mean, I have a lot at this point since I started like literally in the eighties. Um, but, uh, one that I thought of, uh, was in summer of 2019. Uh, my husband, Max and I were taking a, a long road trip around Southeast Washington and Northeast Oregon, visiting some different spots. And we planned to go and look for what would be my 500th ABA bird species. And this was a bird that we had looked for in that area before, um, but missed it because we didn't know exactly where to go and didn't want to get lost. And But this time I had a map from a friend. And so we drove up into the Blue Mountains and we drove along these rutted dirt roads through the pine trees and around and we parked in this meadow and it just seemed too good to be true. But we just walked through this meadow and into the forest, got to this little break in the forest and there were already other birders there because this particular bird was a celebrity and it was a great gray owl. And it was my 500th ABA bird and it was just the most amazing view of this bird. So um, the great gray owls in the Blue Mountains are closely tracked by biologists and there are some nesting platforms that are kind of nesting boxes that they use. And there was this one owl that would just nest in this one area year after year using this one box. And she uh, did not care about people at all. And so when people wanted to know where the owls were, I think the biologists would just say, well, you can go visit this area and see this owl because then they would leave the other owls alone. So this owl didn't care. People were getting pretty close to take pictures of this owl and the biologist is sitting right there, doesn't say a thing and the owl does not flinch blink, look worried at all. So I didn't want to get that close, but I got to watch this owl through my spotting scope and her plumage just like matched the ponderosa pines that she was sitting in. And she would do her cool, like deep hoot to her partner that was way off in the forest somewhere else. And I mean, eventually we just like walked away from the owl because we had other stuff to do, but she was just 
hanging out like in this tree. I think her babies were sleeping in the nest. And so she was just having some chill time. And it was amazing. My first time to see those owls after wanting to so much. And they are just huge. They're like huge, puffy Muppets. And they are just like too big to be real. And it was amazing. So that's that's one I'll always remember. That's amazing. So is she, does she come back year after? Well, I mean, is she there year round? I haven't gone since then, but I think that the ranger district there in Lagrande, you know, will will give out information if there's nests that they think are okay for people to to visit out there. But it's it's pretty cool. I hope that she's still out there enjoying the forest up there, <laughs> having lots of babies. That that is so cool. So where's the place you think every birder should try to go? Well, I mean, I feel like I should say the Oregon coast so that people will buy my book, right? Um, but I have to say, uh, as far as novelty goes, um, I haven't gotten to do a lot of international birding, but some of my favorite birding in the U.S. was the the one and only trip that I've taken to the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. And I know that that's a place that you've gotten to bird a lot and and know well and man it's just there's so many birds there's like mexico birds there's coastal birds there's like eastern birds but then there's kind of western birds and it's just it's amazing um there's birds everywhere and then there's a ton of i mean aside from the border wall nonsense a ton of great places to bird down there as far as different refuges and nature centers and parks and, and things like that. So um, aside from the heat, just, and, oh, and the chiggers, uh, amazing. <laughs> but uh, even, even in March, a little warm, but totally worth it. Um, I want to get down there for the festival in November sometime. But um, if, if folks have not birded, um, down there, especially if they're not from anywhere near there. It's just, it's amazing. And you'll see so many new birds. You know, I've never gotten chiggers there, but the mosquitoes are just like <gasps> deadly in some of those sections like Benson, where I used to work. Like they are all times of year. They're awful. I don't, you know, it's good for birds though, I guess. <laughs> it's true. The bugginess does, does make for for good birding. And then there's like alligators around. We saw a bobcat at Benson. I mean, it's so cool. Everybody sees a bobcat at Benson. That's like, <laughs> that's like the thing about it that nobody talks about. But like, yeah, if you go on one of those tram rides around the park, like everybody sees a bobcat. It is just so cool. So um, what changes would you like to see in the future of the birding community? So, I mean, I think we've kind of covered this. I just, I want to see our community continue to uh, work toward making birding more welcoming and accessible because I think it's good for birding. I think it's good for conservation, which is something that I care a lot about. Um, and I think it's good for that reason for the birds. So let's just go out there and get as many people into birding as possible. I want it to just be a big, cool, diverse community of birders. That would be awesome. 
So what do you think has been the most valuable thing you've learned from birding? Oh, this was such an interesting question. I had to think about it for a while. So I don't think that this would surprise anyone, but being a birder in junior high school uh, was not considered cool, uh, at least not when I was in school. Um, I was always a bit of a nerd, um, but it turns out that finding other people who are nerds about the same thing that you are is just the best. So you might even end up marrying one. Um, like I did, <laughs> um, or like you did, I guess. <laughs> so I guess I've learned um, from birding that you don't have to change who you are to be accepted and that it's possible to make friends even as an adult. Well, that's awesome. Well, th thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me. If folks want to find out more about what you do or find your books, how would they do that? Yeah, so I created a website. It is Sarah Loves birds.com and Sarah is spelled with an H. Awesome. That's very easy to remember. Well, thank you so much for your time and for joining me. Thank you, Hannah. So thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me for this podcast. Um, it's always great to find out more about my friends and have a chance to actually talk since we don't get to do that that often. And thank you all for joining me for this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. You can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to me. If you'd like to connect with me on socials, you can do so by following me at Hannah Goes Birding on Instagram. My Twitter is at WomenBirdersHH, or you can email me at WomenBirders at gmail.com. I also have resources and information on GoBirdingPodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed this chat, and I look forward to seeing you at the next happy hour.